Twelve Byzantine Rulers by Lars Brownworth Episode 3, Constantine, Part 1 Welcome back. In the last lecture, we talked about the enigmatic Diocletian, his rise to supreme power, and the surprising decision to give it all away, first by sharing it with a colleague, and then with his extraordinary abdication. He was able to pass into obscurity, living out his remaining years tending cabbages, partly through strength of will, and partly because he was so thoroughly eclipsed by the rising star of the Roman world, Constantine. Seldom has one man had such an effect on history. If Diocletian was the grandfather of Byzantium, then Constantine was the father, a father who would stamp his impression over every inch of his empire. He founded a pagan, chaotic state where emperors were just overmighty commoners appointed by the army, and left it a Christian, ordered state, with a single, absolute ruler appointed by God. He was born into the confusing world of Diocletian's Tetrarchy, a single empire with four legitimate emperors. Diocletian had intended that this would usher in a new age of peace and prosperity, but instead it just degenerated into full-blown civil war, made even more devastating in that rather than just two sides, there were often three and sometimes four. Fortunately for us, the emperors made things much simpler by killing each other off relatively quickly. When Diocletian and his co-emperor Maximian abdicated, they appointed two senior emperors and two junior ones to replace them. In the West, the senior emperor, or Augustus, was Constantine's father, Constantius Chlorus, and the junior emperor, or Caesar, was a man named Severus. In the East, Galerius was Augustus, and Maximinus Dio was the Caesar. There were problems right from the start. The two senior emperors, Galerius and Constantius, despised each other and refused to cooperate. To make matters even worse, Constantius, whose nickname Chlorus means pale, was dying probably from leukemia and in their ensuing power struggle was unable to prevent Galerius from installing his own candidate as junior emperor. These problems were serious enough, but the fatal flaw in Diocletian's plan was that it ignored the fact that both Constantius Chlorus and Maximian had ambitious young sons who were not content to be passed over. Constantine was serving as a staff officer when the new emperors were announced, and with a mix of disappointment and fear over the current turn of events, he set out to join his father in Britain to fight the Picts in 305. He seems to have instantly won the admiration of his father's troops, and together they were successful. Constantius even took the title Britannicus Maximus for his success, but was too sick to enjoy it for long, and died the next spring in York. At this point, Constantine's position is precarious. With his father gone, he had no legitimate claim to power, and the other emperors were either indifferent or openly hostile to him. Legally, Galerius's man Severus should have become Augustus and should have been free to pick his own successor, but... The army loved Constantine and hailed him as emperor without waiting for instructions from anyone else. Galerius was understandably furious, but the deed was done, so he tried to mitigate the damage by confirming Constantine as Caesar only. There's no telling how long this new arrangement would have lasted had not another complication arisen. The city of Rome, though of declining importance, had certain hereditary rights, among them an exemption from all taxes. Galerius had incited undying Roman hatred by foolishly trying to extend the tax to Rome itself, 
and the insulted citizens looked around for a more friendly administration. Fortunately for them, Constantine wasn't the only imperial son to have gotten passed over. Maximian, Diocletian's old co-emperor, also had an ambitious son named Maxentius, who upon finding himself ignored, simply moved into Rome, declared it to be tax-free, and was proclaimed emperor to the cheering crowds. Realizing how tenuous his grip on power was, especially since he lacked an army, he sent a purple robe to his father Maximian, who never really wanted to retire in the first place, and he invited him to be co-emperor. He then looked around for allies and found another natural one in Constantine, another emperor of shaky legitimacy, and concluded the alliance by giving him his sister Fausta in marriage. Galerius had no intention of letting Maxentius get away with this and told Severus to crush the Italian usurper. Severus, gleefully noting that Maxentius had few troops, descended on Italy virtually unopposed, but disaster struck as his army melted away at the very walls of Rome due to massive, well-placed bribes from Maxentius. Severus then fled to Ravenna, was captured, abdicated, and killed. Galerius, at this point seriously annoyed, and probably thinking that if he wanted a job done right, he had to do it himself, invaded in the same month. Unfortunately, his army proved just as susceptible to Maxentius's bribes, and he barely escaped Italy alive. At this point, the rather dysfunctional nature of Roman families returned to plague Maxentius. His father, Maximian, probably jealous at having to share power, took advantage of all this good luck to try to overthrow his son, he botched the attempt and had to flee to his son-in-law, Constantine. Things were descending into chaos. Desperate for some stability, the surviving emperors called Diocletian out of retirement and hoped that he could solve everything. His solution, not surprisingly, was a new official tetrarchy. The cranky old ex-emperor's first order of business was to tell Maximian, his old colleague, to retire and stay retired this time. A new Augustus was then picked for the West. His name was Licinius, and Constantine was officially confirmed as Caesar. The East remained unchanged, with the Augustus Galerius and the Caesar Maximinus Dia. One issue, the elephant in the room that no one really wanted to talk about, remained unresolved, and this was the ridiculous situation where none of the four legitimate rulers of the Roman Empire controlled Rome. Official policy ignored him, so Maxentius was safe with his bribes in Italy. Unfortunately, Diocletian's new solution did not survive the year, and all too soon the emperors were at each other's throats. Maximian, once again chafing at his forced retirement, was the first to revolt, and he decided to have one more go at imperial power. Taking advantage of Constantine's absence, he declared him dead and proclaimed himself emperor. Unfortunately for him, Constantine was very much alive and rather annoyed. Maximian fled to Marseille, only to realize too late that their loyalty was with his enemy. They opened their gates, and Maximian was forced to commit suicide. The two men had never really been close, but the killing of his father-in-law seems to have affected Constantine deeply. He was increasingly drawn toward monotheism, and it was around this time that he replaced the images of the gods on his coins to one of Sol Invictus, the unconquered sun. But this still seems to have left him unsatisfied. He was, in short, a man ready to be converted. The only question was to what religion. It was therefore significant that now, for the first time, with the execution of Maximian, who had periodically persecuted Christians, 
he found himself a de facto defender of Christianity. In the West, Licinius was officially neutral, and Maxentius certainly couldn't afford to offend anyone, so the only persecutors left were in the East, Galerius and Maximinus Dia. Galerius, the Eastern Augustus, by this time was in serious decline, hopelessly obese and dying from a horrendous form of cancer. In agony during his last days, he suspended all pogroms and ordered the building of churches and the sayings of prayers on his behalf, but didn't survive long enough to hear them. The death of Galerius resulted in a showdown between Licinius and Maximinus Dia. Confronting each other on the battlefield, however, Licinius seems to have had second thoughts and come to an unequal terms without fighting. This show of weakness was not missed by Constantine, who had been observing the situation with interest and shrewdly concluded that if he conquered Maxentius's Italian property, which theoretically belonged to Licinius, he could keep it for himself. So in 312 he crossed the Alps and invaded Italy. After sacking Turin and Verona, he appeared outside Rome on October 28th, six years to the day since Maxentius had declared himself emperor. Maxentius, meanwhile, was having serious problems of his own. His popularity in Rome had fallen to alarming lows due to his pursuit of other men's wives, his ambivalent stance toward Christians, and the brutal killing of thousands of protesters during some riots three years earlier. His popularity had never recovered, and no longer certain of the loyalty of his subjects, especially during a long siege, he decided to risk everything in a decisive battle. He gathered his forces and marched out to confront the invading army. The site they met was seven or eight miles northeast of the city at a place called Saxarubra, Red Rocks, and it was here that Constantine had his famous vision, which, according to the historian Lactantius, probably writing one or two years after the actual event, consisted of a private dream telling him to mark his soldiers with the chi and the rho, the first two letters in Greek of Christ's name. Armed with the new certainty of divine favor, Constantine routed his opponent and chased him all the way back to the old Milvian Bridge, a narrow causeway across the Tiber. Realizing that it was too narrow to accommodate an entire army, Maxentius had thoughtfully constructed a pontoon bridge next to it, wide enough for an orderly retreat and able to be broken in the middle to prevent pursuit. Unfortunately, with Constantine hard on his heels, the retreat was anything but orderly. In the chaos, his engineers pulled the bolts too early and the entire structure collapsed, sending half the army into the river. The only other option was now the old Milvian Bridge, which, as Maxentius had feared, was too narrow to accommodate a panicked army. Those who weren't crushed underfoot were flung off the bridge by their own desperate comrades, which seems to have been the fate of Maxentius himself. His corpse was found washed up on the shore, and his head was carried into the city the next day by the victorious Constantine. The Battle of the Milvian Bridge left Constantine in supreme control of the West, but more importantly, it marks the beginning of his active protection of Christianity, and in light of the consequences, a watershed moment in history. Constantine himself would date his conversion to this point. For the moment, however, he had to tread very carefully. On his triumphal arch, still standing just outside the Colosseum, he made no mention of Christ, merely saying that he was instinct with divinity, whatever that means. He then met with Licinius, his elderly counterpart in the East, and together they decided to issue an edict of toleration, 
again worded very carefully, which made no mention of a particular God, merely saying, reverence for the deity, and whatsoever divinity dwells in heaven. The two emperors then sealed their new friendship with the marriage of Licinius and Constantine's daughter, Constantia. They then agreed to issue another proclamation, giving Christianity full legal recognition across the empire. At this moment, however, Licinius got word that the third Augustus, Maximinus Dia, had invaded his territory with 70,000 troops and seized the small town of Byzantium. Once again, it was Christian versus pagan, as Licinius fought under the banner of the cross, and Maximinus Dia had vowed to eradicate Christianity if the gods gave him victory. Unfortunately for Maximinus Dia, his generalship was not as strong as his faith, and the much older Licinius, though heavily outnumbered, managed to pull off a stunning victory. Maximinus Dia, disguised as a slave, fled the battlefield, but, relentlessly pursued, decided to commit suicide. Unfortunately, he chose a particularly slow poison that drove him mad to the point where he was eating handfuls of dirt and took an agonizing four days to die. Licinius chose to celebrate his victory of the cross with a quite unchristian bloodbath, killing anyone related to a former emperor, including a daughter of Diocletian, a son of Galerius, a son of Severus, and several other women and children. The death of Maximinus Dia should have left the empire in peace, but two key factors were against this. First, Constantine had decided to make Christianity an integral part of his policies, and Licinius was at best a lukewarm supporter. Second, and more importantly, Constantine was determined to tolerate a rival only as long as absolutely necessary. As one historian put it, the empire was not, for all its vastness, big enough for both of them. In 316, Constantine's opportunity came. Invading on the dubious pretext that Licinius had refused to appoint one of his candidates as Caesar, Constantine swept all before him, defeating Licinius's much larger army. Licinius fled east and in desperation appointed Valens, the commander of his Danube forces, as co-emperor. Valens, who you can't help but sympathize with, assembled another army and fought Constantine to a standstill in Thrace. Constantine, realizing the difficulty of the battles ahead and probably gnashing his teeth in frustration, decided to come to terms. The treaty heavily favored him, granting him most of the Balkans, and for his reward, poor Valens was executed. The next six years, though peaceful, were marked by a steady deterioration in east-west relations. Constantine moved his capital east to the modern Sophia, a curious choice for one whose domain stretched all the way to the Atlantic Ocean, and justifiable only if he considered Licinius more of a threat than any barbarian tribe or western usurper. He set himself up as the protector of Christians everywhere, with the result that Licinius, while remaining generally tolerant of Christianity, began to suspect Christians of acting as a fifth column inside his territories. His mistake, however, was to act against them. In 323, he uncovered evidence that several bishops were openly conspiring against him, and he executed them and destroyed their churches. This gave Constantine just the excuse he was looking for, and the next year he invaded. After some early reverses, Licinius tried his old trick of appointing a co-emperor, though I'm not sure why anyone would want this job by now considering what happened to the last one. But this time, there was no escape. Constantine soundly defeated him in a decisive battle on the banks of the Bosphorus, and, 
on the condition that his life would be spared, Licinius surrendered. He was sent into a comfortable exile, where several months later, Constantine repented of his clemency and had him hanged. The civil wars were over, and the Roman Empire was at last at peace. United under the strong hand of a single ruler, it must have seemed to many that a new age was dawning. Still only 52 years old, Constantine was popular and dashing, and had three sons to ensure the succession. The eldest of them, Crispus, was energetic, brilliant, and even more well-liked than his father. The future seemed bright indeed. Constantine had united the political world under his leadership. He now turned his prodigious energies toward an even more difficult goal, uniting a Christianity which seemed on the brink of tearing itself apart. In the next lecture, we'll look at the founding of Byzantium and decide if a man who could kill his own wife and son can be seen as the protector of Christianity. Twelve Byzantine Rulers is a podcast written and recorded by Lars Brownworth, author of the book Lost to the West, The Forgotten Byzantine Empire That Rescued Western Civilization. Look for Lost to the West on Amazon.com or at your local bookstore. Visit us at 12byzantinerulers.com.